This is the COVID-19 vaccines hosted by the Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Commission. And my name is Brent Leatherwood. I serve as the RLC Chief of Staff here in our Nashville office. Uh, before we begin today, I just want to uh, know uh, a little bit about the work that we do. We are the Ethics and Moral Concern uh, Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Francis Collins. He was appointed the 16th Director of the National Institutes of Health by President Barack Obama. He was sworn in on August 17, 2009. On June 6, 2017, President Donald Trump uh, announced his selection of Dr. Collins to continue to serve as the director of the NIH. And in this role, the National Institutes of Health director, he oversees the work of the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world, spanning the spectrum from uh, basic research to clinical research. And so we are very thankful for his work there. But he also is a physician geneticist noted for his landmark discoveries of disease genes and his leadership of the International Human Genome Project, which culminated in April of 2003 with the completion of a finished sequence of the human DNA. That is an incredible accomplishment, and we are so thankful for your work there, Dr. Collins. And he'll be interviewed today by our president. He is the author of several books, including uh, his most recent one, The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul. He is also a personal friend of Dr. Collins, and I think we will all really benefit from this discussion today. So without further ado, Dr. Moore, the floor is yours, sir. Thanks, Brent. Thank you, Francis, for taking the time to do this. I know in the middle of a whirlwind of activity going on for you. Before I even start, I just want to tell you how, how happy I am to talk to you. You're someone I respect immensely, uh, not only as a leader and as a, a scientist, but as a fellow follower of Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you, this might put a little more pressure on you, not that you need any more. But we're part of the same book club. And uh, throughout all of this time of COVID, it, I felt sometimes almost like when I was a kid and we would be in the car driving through some sort of a rainstorm. And I'm looking to see if dad uh, looks confident and OK. And so in the middle of, of all of this time, I would sometimes say, OK, Francis is doing all right and he's in charge of leading us through this. So that means we can all we can all be okay and do our part through this. So I'm just really grateful for your being here and being a part of this. Oh, thanks, Russell. It is wonderful to be able to have this conversation with you. And yes, I cherish that book club as well as a time where I get to do something other than think about COVID and learn from really deeply thoughtful believers like yourself and Tim Keller and others. Uh, it's just a wonderful way to refresh my soul in the midst of what are 90 to 100 hour weeks of trying to push forward the research that we need uh, to find our way through this and to put COVID-19 in the rearview mirror. And we're going to get there, but we're not there yet. Well, with the news about the vaccines, I think there are some people who uh, assume this is kind of like a movie uh, where we, we've had the pandemic, the vaccine is here, the cure is here, it's, it's over. And so we have sort of a VJ day type of uh, celebration in Times Square and move on. That's not exactly how it's going to work, is it? No, it won't happen overnight. Uh, the good news is that help is on the way. The vaccines, which have been now put together and tested rigorously at a timetable that's never been achieved before, are close to the point of receiving approval in the United States for emergency use. 
Just let me say a word about how these vaccines work. Uh, this is this virus that we're trying to figure out how to get rid of. It has these spikes on the surface. These are proteins, and it's actually called a spike protein. And that's the part of the virus that the immune system recognizes. And if you got sick with this virus, the immune system would figure out most of the time how to get you better by raising antibodies against those spikes. The vaccine aims to give you the chance to raise those antibodies without having to get sick. And so basically doesn't give you the whole virus. There's no risk the vaccine is actually gonna cause COVID-19, but it will make a little bit of that spike protein uh, the ones that are currently being closest to approval uh, allow you to make that protein in your muscle after an injection in your arm. And then the immune system goes to town and builds the defenses that you will need. And if in the future, then you encounter the real virus, the immune system is all primed and ready to go and says, oh, no, you don't. That's the strategy. The strategy looks as if for this virus, uh, it's going to be pretty effective None of us really knew uh, with this particular virus, which we hadn't seen before, would this kind of strategy give you a high level of effectiveness? We kind of held our breath as we went from phase one to phase two to phase three. And then for the two vaccines that are furthest along, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, we were delighted, thrilled, amazed uh, to see that it looked like the effectiveness was about 95%. That is so much better than what you could expect to see with a, with a new illness of this sort. And the safety looks really good as well in 30,000 people for each of those that have had this and who have volunteered for these trials. So we're on a very good path. And the other thing that was done, Russell, it was in order to try to speed up the process of saving lives, is that we've started through something called Operation Warp Speed to manufacture tens of millions of doses of these vaccines, even before we knew if they were going to work. If they hadn't worked, we'd had to throw those doses out, but fortunately, they're there. So that if, as expected, these two vaccines get US approval later this month, we can start immunizing people immediately uh, the next day with about 40 million doses that are already ready to go. Now, one trick here is these vaccines are not a single injection. There's an injection and then a month later, there's a second injection, sort of like a booster to really rev up that immune system to give you the best protection. So 40 million doses means 20 million people. Uh, and you might have noticed just a couple of days ago, the CDC's advisory committee recommended that these go first to the highest risk people, namely healthcare providers who are in harm's way by taking care of patients who are sick with COVID, and also elderly high risk individuals in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. They'll be first in line and they should be. And then over the coming months, as more vaccine gets produced, uh, we will figure out how to get this ultimately to all Americans who are ready to accept it. And that's something we probably need to talk about because if we don't see wide acceptance, the potential here of this to drive this vaccine out of our experience uh, could be muted or maybe even fail altogether. We need to figure out how to get most of the country immune. Well, let's talk about that. Maybe some of the reasons that people might be nervous. And, and I'm not talking about the conspiracy theorists that, that would be posting somewhere out on social media. I'm just talking about a regular person who says, I don't know a lot about science, but I'm wondering, we have Operation Warp Speed. Uh, even the language could cause somebody to be a little nervous to say, well, how do we know that this is going to be safe for me to take? How do I know that 
I turn on the television and there are personal injury attorneys saying, if you took such and such diet pill back in the 1990s, then we can help you get a check. How do I know that something bad isn't going to happen to me or, or my family with the vaccine? What would you say to reassure those people? Well, here's a great opportunity uh, for Christians to say, let's really look at the truth of the situation and evaluate what the evidence demonstrates for and against uh, the idea that this is something I'd want to take advantage of myself. There's an awful lot of information floating around, particularly in social media, that frankly doesn't represent truth. It represents some certain degree of fear and anxiety and some just frank conspiracies that are pretty outrageous. I guess I come back to Philippians 4, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That would apply really well right here. So whatever is true. And this is where we are making every effort, and I'm very much engaged in this uh, effort, uh, to be as transparent as possible. There will be, on December 10th, a public meeting to discuss the Pfizer vaccine with all of the details out there about safety and efficacy. A week later, a similar public meeting about the Moderna vaccine. People who really wanna see the data, it's all gonna be there. And that would be the place to go if you're trying to size up what's the evidence for and against. And again, the warp speed name probably was not the greatest choice. It was supposed to inspire people that we're not just, you know, doing this slow and bureaucratic. We're really doing this in an unprecedented timetable, which is true. But it may have also conveyed that we're cutting corners. I want to assure you, as a scientist, as a physician, as a researcher who's been in the middle of all of this since January, we have done nothing to compromise in even the smallest way uh, the safety or the efficacy standards for these vaccines. What we've done is to figure out how to get rid of some of the dead time that normally means it takes eight years to develop a vaccine and to do it instead in 10 months. But the rigor involved, if anything, has been escalated to an even higher level than has been applied to vaccines before. In the past, usually a trial for a vaccine was maybe four or 5,000 people. And these are all at least 30,000 people. So you're really looking for any hint, something that didn't go right. So if the FDA and their conclusions in just a couple of weeks uh, say these are safe and effective, that's because the data says they're safe and effective. So I hope that will be more important in people's view than a lot of the rumors that have been flying around, some of which have unfortunately been made worse by political considerations and timetables that were based on elections as opposed to science. We will not let those things get in the way. This has got to be done right. One person asked me uh, just today, said, well, you know, the, the vaccines that we're looking at interact with the human body in unprecedented ways. They, they, don't, uh, they don't operate the way that, say, a or, uh, or a polio vaccine or something else would. And so since it's so unprecedented in this person's estimation, how do we know uh, what it's going to do? Is that, is that really the case? Is this dramatically different from the other sorts of vaccines that we've seen? I would not say dramatically different. It's a more efficient way to be able to take the first information you have about a virus and design a vaccine. So back in January, when the Chinese published the letters of the DNA code of this virus, SARS-CoV-2, it was possible the next day to begin designing a vaccine for that. The idea here is, again, we're trying to figure out how to raise antibodies against these spike proteins. 
Proteins in your body and in every living organism are coded for by DNA and then by RNA, and then the RNA gets translated into the protein. This was an approach where basically your vaccine is the RNA that codes for this spike protein. You inject that into the muscle, the muscle goes, oh, that's RNA, I know what that is, and it makes the spike protein, and then the immune system sees it. The RNA lives a very short time in your body. It is quickly degraded because RNA has a very short half-life. So there's no residual of what you've been injected with beyond probably a few hours. So while this is a new approach to vaccines that offers this considerable advantage of speed, uh, and one could say, well, we don't have 20 years of experience with it. Uh, the evidence so far uh, with uh, tens of thousands of people who've received this is that side effects seem to be pretty similar to what you get with other vaccines. And there don't seem to be any unexpected longer term issues. And these trials have been observed now for at least two months. And that's usually if there's going to be a problem when you see it. And no. So again, I'm a scientist. I want to be absolutely clear. This is a new approach. But from everything we know, there's no reason to think that these should be any more or less safe than vaccines that are designed in other ways. And, and no metals that interact with 5G towers and, uh, and implant uh, ways that people can know where you are and track you. And so no, and Bill, and Bill Gates has not convinced us to put microchips into the syringes. <laughs> I still think there are people who have heard that and think maybe it could be true. I really want to assure people, these are wild, crazy ideas. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Mm, chips from Bill Gates, not in that list. Well, and what's so dangerous about those things is not so much that people will believe them as it is, uh, you know, a pastor in a local church uh, can have people going around and saying, well, I'm just really concerned about pastor so-and-so about this and this and this and this. And the cumulative effect sometimes can lead people to just say, well, I don't know about pastor so-and-so. People have concerns. And, uh, and that really can, can harm someone's uh, life and ministry, how much more so uh, when we're dealing with this sort of question that has to do with people's lives. So what would you say if you were, a lot of pastors and, and Christian leaders are going to have people coming up and saying, well, I don't know, I'm really concerned that the vaccine's trying to take our freedom away or the vaccine's going to be harmful, or as some people are concerned, well, maybe taking the vaccine compromises my pro-life convictions because maybe uh, there's some, it's resting on research that's been done as a result of abortions. So how do I think through all of this? What would you say to a, a leader or a pastor who's trying to help people think these things through, but isn't an expert on uh, science and so forth? Oh, Russell, that's a really good question. And I do sympathize with people trying to sort this through with those concerns, which I certainly hear, and I'm sure pastors do in every church across this country and across the world, I think it's important to say there is no medical intervention that I know of that is absolutely without some kind of potential risk. That's just the nature of what we do. If you have cancer and you're going to get chemotherapy, you know that that can make you pretty sick, but it might also cure you. Uh, if you have diabetes and you need to take a pill for that, you can read that that pill has certain side effects that some people have. So for us to insist that a vaccine has to be 100% free of any possible risk wouldn't be reasonable. So what you try to do is to say, well, what's the evidence about whether that risk seems to be very significant or whether it seems to be very minimal? Right now, it looks minimal. And in terms of the benefits that you're trying to talk about, 
after all, look at where we are in our country. 280,000 people have lost their lives uh, to this. About one person every minute is dying of COVID-19. Most of us know people now who have lost their lives because it is so rampant. And it's particularly rampant right now across the country in virtually every state, uh, every small town, every rural area, almost no, no area is spared. And we have the chance for this to end and not to go on. Uh, and it will, without some intervention like this, go on not just this year, but the year after, then year after that. And so if you're trying to size up benefits and risks, and if you believe that God gives us the opportunity to act as his agents to try to relieve suffering and death, then it seems like this is a pretty good balance of benefits and risks that you'd want to engage in and probably take advantage of yourself and roll up your sleeve. At least that's what I believe the case would argue. Now, I do understand people's concerns about whether there is some role here uh, for material derived from abortions. And this is an issue that the Catholic Church has uh, weighed in on and other churches have as well. Let me be clear. There's a cell line, which was derived in 1972, a cell line that was derived from a pregnancy termination in Scandinavia, uh, an elective abortion. That cell line has been used, it's called HEK-293, in many, many areas of biotechnology because it just happens to work particularly well for various purposes. That cell line is, in fact, part of the preparation of two of the vaccines that aren't yet ready for approval, one by Johnson & Johnson and one by AstraZeneca. That cell line is not used in the production of the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, which are closest to approval, although that cell line is sometimes used just as a lab bench experiment to make sure that everything is working the way it's supposed to. But it's not in the production line, which I think makes a lot of difference to people who are very strongly pro-life. So yeah, look at the evidence there. I think the Catholic Church's position, which I thought was pretty thoughtful, was that believers who are pro-life should look at this issue. But if you have a life-saving intervention and there's no other alternative that is acceptable when we're talking about cell lines derived 50 years ago, there's no current use of human fetal tissue at all in any of these vaccines they would say that could be acceptable. But that is an area, of course, uh, of controversy that everybody has to think about where their own line is. For me, I think certainly vaccines that have not used those in any way seem entirely acceptable for Christians to embrace. And again, if we are called to be agents uh, of healing, and if we are trying to model ourselves after Christ, who spent so much of the time we know about uh, on, on this earth uh, in healing activities, this seems like a pretty good balance that leads us in the direction to be actors uh, that could take advantage of what science through God's grace has given us as a means of ending this terrible pandemic that's taken so many lives. So it's, it's not true, as some would say, well, if we just don't take the vaccine and we just ride this through, we're all going to have herd immunity and it will just go away. If we were to adopt that strategy, uh, we potentially would eventually get to herd immunity, but there would be millions of us no longer around. Uh, the death consequences of that would be appalling. And that's not just you know uh, those folks who are already in nursing homes. That's uh, most of the people who have died of COVID-19 so far 
are people who are walking around in society, many of them in the prime of life, perhaps with hypertension or diabetes or some other illness that predisposes them to having a particularly severe case. But this is all of us. That is too high a price uh, for us to bear if we don't have to. This whole idea of just let it rip and herd immunity will take care of it. Well, yeah, but most of us might not be there at that point. We can do better than that. That's not a Christian answer if we love our neighbors. Well, you you mentioned that hope is on the way. There's a, there's a light around the corner, but uh, we're in store for what, by every estimation, is a horrible uh, winter. What would you advise to, to churches thinking through how to be as safe as possible? Uh, and I'm talking about churches that are gathering physically, but trying to do that safely. If you were watching a service as someone who knows uh, all the science about this, what would you be looking for in order to say, okay, this church really is taking this uh, seriously and doing their best to minimize risk for people in congregations? I know people are tired of hearing these messages and having to be uh, acting upon them, but the virus does not care that we're tired. Uh, The virus is having a wonderful time right now, spreading through this country, taking advantage of circumstances where people have let their guard go down. Uh, We need to be just absolutely rigorously adherent to things that we know work, but they don't work unless everybody actually sticks to them faithfully without exception. Churches gathering in person, a source of considerable concern, and has certainly been an instance where super spreading has happened and could happen again. Uh, So I think most churches uh, really ought to be advised, uh, if they're not already doing so, uh, to to go to remote uh, virtual kinds of services. That's the way I'm uh, having my experiences as, as a churchgoer. Because otherwise, and you've probably seen this too, if you've been to a a physical church service, people come into the church, they're wearing their masks, they're being careful, they're staying six feet apart. Um, And then you get to the end of the service and you just can't get a bunch of Christians not to hug each other and not to want to shake hands with the pastor as they go out the door and maybe have a conversation that's a whole lot closer than six feet away. And that's where the trouble happens. So... Again, if we are, as Christians, called uh, not to be observers, but to be participants in getting past this and dealing with uh, the needs uh, for attending to the sick and suffering, I think there are other ways uh, that we can do that. And that means all of us are recognizing the simple measures, even though they've gotten politicized like this, this is not a political statement. <laughs> this is not an uh, invasion of your personal freedom. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're less masculine if you wear one. Guys, I'm talking to you. <laughs> this is what it is. This is a life-saving medical device. Think about it that way. Just as we as a society have understood other situations where collectively we need to do things to protect ourselves and each other, like not drinking and driving, for instance, wearing a seatbelt, not smoking on an airplane. This is one of those things where basically for all of our good, uh, we need to adopt common sense measures. And yeah, I don't enjoy wearing it either, but I've gotten pretty used to it. Whenever you're outside, wear that mask, keep that six foot distance from everybody else. Don't gather indoors, particularly without masks. That's where the spreading event have been happening, particularly this fall, and I'm afraid may have happened over Thanksgiving and 
what were supposed to be happy family gatherings that may have spread out this virus instead. And of course, wash your hands every chance you get. Those are all simple measures. Maybe people are tired of hearing about the three W's, you know, wear your mask, watch your distance, wash your hands. But getting that as a habit, not an exception, but a habit, is about the only way we're going to keep the current spike in illness from becoming maybe about the worst thing our country has seen in decades. We are on a terrible path here. There are over 100,000 people hospitalized right now. That's the largest number since this started, all from COVID-19. And that curve is going straight up. And the only way we can keep our friends and neighbors from being part of that is not to spread this around. And remember, when you put on that mask, you're protecting yourself a little bit from other people, but mostly you're protecting them from you. You are doing the altruistic loving thing of saying, just in case I'm that asymptomatic carrier that feels fine, but is actually contagious, I'm going to protect those people from me. That sounds like a Christian action if I've ever heard one. Well, Francis, I know you're not a psychic, but uh, it, suppose that the, the vaccine distribution, things go as well as we could imagine them going uh, in, in terms of realistic uh, scenarios. How long is this going to last? Are, are, are we going to be able to have vacation Bible school and uh, big uh, uh, church youth camps uh, this summer and, and big denominational uh, gatherings and hymn sings and, and what have you? How long until we're back to more or less normal? And boy, wouldn't it be great to have all of those things back with us. Um, I don't have a crystal ball. And some of this depends on the vaccines that are certainly still in the middle of trials. And we don't know if they're going to work. The first two look really good. There are four more vaccines right behind them. If those also work, that just means our manufacturing ability gets even better and we can get more doses uh, available to more people quicker. At the current pace of things, I think by April, uh, many of the high-risk individuals, people over 65, that would be me, uh, people with chronic illnesses, uh, certainly essential workers uh, who we need to be out there in the workplace, uh, keeping our society going, uh, should have had a chance to get vaccinated. And by early summer, pretty much every American should have had this opportunity, with one exception that I'm not quite sure about, which is children. Oh, the trials that have been run have not involved children. That's usually done later after you make sure that there's no surprise safety problems. That will be getting started. I don't know exactly what the timetable will be for immunizing children, but we'll need to get to that too. I'm guardedly optimistic that by the summer, uh, we may be able to have a vacation Bible school. We may be able to go to a baseball game and see it in, in real terms. And certainly by next fall, I'm hoping we can get back to things like normal schools and businesses and our economy can get back on its feet. But there are a lot of steps between now and then. And of course, it will go better if we don't have our healthcare system utterly devastated by the ongoing pandemic uh, that we could have potentially turned around by all of us taking those public health actions we just talked about. Well, I need to let you go back to saving the world. But before I do, how can how can people be praying for you uh, right now? Oh, that's very kind. I might also say, how can people do something themselves to participate? Let me just quickly uh, give you a tip about that. And then, yeah, I'll answer your question. We do need people to take part in these research studies. We're not done, both in terms of vaccines, but also in terms of treatments for people who are sick, things like monoclonal antibodies, which look like they're working, but we need more data to prove it. 
And we need to have people donate plasma if they've survived COVID-19 because that convalescent plasma can help other people. There is a uh, portal, a website that just went up yesterday that will allow people who are interested in any of those things, sort of one-stop shopping to see what kind of trials or donations might be available to them in their local vicinity. And that is called combatcovid, one word, .hhs.gov. Christians are also good at rising to the occasion when there's something you can do and here's something you can do. For me, I guess I would ask for your prayers uh, for stamina because this is 24-7 uh, and it's been that way now since January here in my home office with these uh, small four walls sometimes feeling like they're closing. <laughs> uh, prayers for my family who I have not been able to see uh, in the usual way at Thanksgiving, nor will I see them at Christmas. And I guess prayers uh, that all of us would keep our hearts and minds on the truth and what matters and trying to make this effort go forward for God's glory and to try to do something to save the lives that are still out there awaiting for answers that we might be able to provide. I guess a final thing is just prayers for sort of a sense of inner peace. I will tell you there are times where I feel such a sense of that every day that goes by that we didn't do 100% of what could have been done that day is making a difference in somebody's life a month from now. And sometimes that feels a little overwhelming. I know that's not God's plan for me to carry that load because that is really upon all of us. And with his grace, we're going to get through it. So thanks for asking. Thanks. Thanks for being with us, Francis. I'm so grateful for you. Someone asked me just the other day about our, our book club and said, who is the smartest person in that book club? You know, there's a lot of smart people in there. And I said, well, uh, only one of us has mapped the human genome. And I'm really hoping right now he is the smartest person in the book club because the whole world is dependent upon it. So we're really grateful for your uh, being here uh, today and for, for sharing with us. And we definitely will be praying for you as you lead us through this time. Thanks so much. Well, many blessings on what you're doing, Russell. I'm glad to be part of it here today. Well, thank you, Dr. Collins, uh, for those answers uh, and that wisdom. Thank you, Dr. Moore, for guiding that discussion. And I want to thank everyone who joined us today, took some time out of their busy schedules. I hope that this uh, was helpful and equipping for you. If you are interested in getting future updates about our work in this area at the ERLC, I would encourage you to sign up to receive content at erlc.com slash COVID webinar. And you can always follow our work at ERLC.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay connected with the work that we're doing on behalf of Christians in Washington, D.C. and around the world. Thank you all. I hope you have a blessed day.